So this morning, we are back in the book of James, and I appreciated Pastor Matt's prayer. After that video, I had to kind of regain my composure by getting the lump out of my throat. Wow, what a special thing that was. And um, just reflecting on my mother, you know, I'm so happy that she's with the Lord, but there are times like these when you think specifically about it, you really do miss them. So as Royce uh, was mentioning in his prayer, if you still have a mother alive, you need to make certain that you connect with her because unfortunately, too soon they are gone. And uh, you don't think about it while they're there. I'm guilty of that. I find myself sometimes wishing I'd have spent more time with her once, once they moved to, um, to Broken Arrow. And obviously, I got more time with her than when she was in Texas. But I, I tell you, there's, there's, Seth, there's times I still I think, man, I should have gone over there for that extra lunch. I should have gone over there, should have done it, should have done it, should have done it. So while you still have the opportunity to do it, do it. Just do it. You will not regret that. So this morning in the book of James... Um, I've titled my message, Our Need in Trials, A Word of Caution and a Word of Faith. I want to start off um, just kind of saying some words from an old hymn that perhaps some of you know, perhaps some of you don't, but there's a hymn that um, I know because I grew up in a church singing all the old hymns as a Southern Baptist boy. And um, the title of this hymn is Our Great Savior. Uh, Verse 2 and 3 say, Jesus, what a strength in weakness. Let me hide myself in him. Tempted, tried, and sometimes failing, he my strength, my victory wins. Jesus, what a help in sorrow. While the billows over me roll, even when my heart is breaking, he, my comfort, helps my soul. And then it gets to the chorus, hallelujah, what a savior, hallelujah, what a friend. And the hallelujah, I'm sure most of you know in the Hebrew, that's uh, simply hallelujah, that's the Hebrew word for praise, and then the hallelujah, yah, is for Yahweh. So hallelujah is just simply saying praise Yahweh. What a Savior. Hallelujah. What a friend. Saving, helping, keeping, loving. He is with me to the end. And there's good doctrine built into these songs that we sing, and it's important to sing songs with good doctrine because there are circumstances that will come rolling and billowing, as it says right here, while the billows over me roll. There are billows of trials and temptations to trials and to think wrongly about trials that will try to steamroll us. But it says, but even when my heart is breaking, and our hearts break, as we go through James and we hear the theology that James is laying out, I never want to be misunderstood as thinking that we are rejoicing in our suffering. That is absolutely the wrong way of looking at James chapter 1. We are not rejoicing in our suffering. We're rejoicing in, we're finding joy in the God who can supersede all of our suffering and in the midst of our suffering be conforming us more into the image and character of Christ. And therein is our joy. You see the difference? It's a slight or subtle difference, but it's a huge difference, isn't it? So we're never saying, 
Praise God, we're suffering. We just love suffering. Yes, give me more suffering. I want more trials. No, we're not doing that. Do we want to be more conformed into the image of Jesus? Yes. And one of the ways that God brings that kind of growth into our lives is through the allowance of trials to touch us. And then to cause us to test our faith, to see, are we going to stand on that rock? Are we going to hear the words of Jesus and act on them, or are we going to bail? And so we, we sing songs like this, and it brings help and comfort to our soul. But then I was also reminded in reading some commentaries this past week of a story of a young man named uh, William Borden. And he's oftentimes, it says, referred to as Borden of Yale because... Borden, William Borden, he was an athlete and he attended Yale University before going to Princeton Seminary and he played sports there. And so he was uh, this young man in 1887, born into this very wealthy family and um, had all the resources to make life really pleasant. But young William got saved at a young age and William's heart was turned to the things of Christ. And William... Um, grew up with a desire to take the gospel message to people who were not as privileged as he had been in his life so that they could hear about Jesus, so that the riches and the mansions of heaven could be theirs as well. And at the ripe young age of 25, William Borden, in 1913, left for his first missionary trip uh, to uh, Cairo, Egypt, uh, desiring to minister to the Muslims there in Egypt. And as the story of his life goes, after shortly there arriving in Cairo, Egypt, um, he contracted cerebral meningitis and died there in Cairo, Egypt at the ripe young age of 25. And it's these kinds of stories that when we read them, it makes us perhaps think philosophically, man, what a tragedy. Man, what a loss. And to a certain degree and from a certain perspective, that is indeed a tragedy and a loss. But it was Borden himself who said that when he gave his life to Christ, he wanted to give everything of his to Christ, and he said, quote, whatever the cost. Now, it's one thing to read stories about the William Bordens of life, but it's another thing whenever these kinds of tragedies come crashing upon us. And when they do, when those billows over us roll and our hearts are breaking, are we able to recognize that he, my comfort, helps my soul and be able to say with the psalmist, Hallelujah. Praise Yahweh. Even in the midst of the sorrows of life, even while the billows are rolling, are we capable of doing that? And in our text this morning, James is going to continue to show us that God's investment in your life, he is desiring to conform you more into the image of Jesus Christ. And we have to be those who recognize that that is indeed our great good, as William said, whatever the cost. So when you came to faith in Christ, was this the kind of loving Savior that you had perhaps envisioned? That he might be willing to spend your life so quickly as a candle burning out so quickly? Well, William Borden's life did leave a legacy, being, although being as young as he was, 
coming from the family that he was born into. Stories of him spread quickly. The newspapers were writing of this Borden of Yale and uh, his life and his death. And it spurred others uh, to live lives for Christ as well. And we don't know the impacts that our lives will have on others. So be, be willing to give all for Christ, whatever the cost. And James is going to give us a word of caution this morning. He's going to give us a word of caution about how we think, again, when it comes to facing trials, suffering in our lives. In verses 13 through 16, we're going to see this word of caution. And then in verses 17 and 18, he's going to give us a word of faith, a word of hope. So look at verse 13 with me as he begins here again, giving us this word of caution. James continues in the same context, writing to the same believers who are dispersed abroad to whom he said greetings, those who are suffering greatly, who he's saying consider it joy. He says in verse 13, he continues, let no one say when he is tempted. And this is again the word of caution. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. The word here for tempted, let no one say when he is tempted, tempted, It's from this Greek word right here, perazo. It simply means to try to learn the nature or character of someone or something by submitting such to thorough and extensive testing. To test, to examine, to put to the test. And what's interesting is that this word here in verse 13... For tempted is the same Greek word that we had in verse 2, that we see in verse 12, that was there translated trials, and here translated trial. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. This is the word, and you see we have the same root here, para, and then we got parasomas, and we got uh, Perazo, so for, for tempted here. So we got tempted here, and we got trials here, and we got trials here. And when you go to the lexicon of this Greek word, it's in essence from the same root. Now we see that it has some, some slight variances, but nonetheless, what we realize here is this word of caution James is giving is a caution for us to not wrongly think that God is the direct source of our trials and our temptations that we are facing in life. He's not the one that is the direct source of those things. It says in the passage that God himself does not tempt anyone. And this is the word of caution that we need. And he doesn't tempt anyone because he himself cannot be tempted by, by evil. And why this, why this is so important for us is because when the sea bellows roll and the 
trials come crashing in on life, and I've made mention of this before, but James is going back to this as a word of caution to these brothers who he's calling to consider their trials as joy. He recognizes that there is a temptation, a solicitation within the heart of man to want to not think rightly about trials and to ultimately blame God for those trials and say God is the one that's bringing the suffering and the persecution in these trials directly into my life and thus blame God for them as though somehow he is the one culpable at that level. And James is saying that we, as a word of caution, we need to be careful. Let no one say when he is tempted, when he is under trial, when he's going through thorough and extensive examination to see the true nature and character of his person, He's saying, be careful not to speak wrongly about these trials. And to say, God is the one that's doing it. Let no one say he is being, that when he is tempted, that I am being tempted by God. Do not do that. And then James proceeds towards the end of verse 13 to tell us why this is true, which I've just made mention of. He says, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. James reminds us here that God, in his very nature, cannot be found lacking in any conceivable way. And as such, he cannot thus be tempted. He cannot be put to the test in any manner of sinful solicitation. God's nature does not possess the inner impulse which brings to the mind of man the errant notion that the violation of God's holy law and standards might in the slightest way be favorable or more pleasurable than the keeping of God's holy law and standards. That's the solicitation towards sin, of saying that there's a better way, God, that you could have managed this in my life. You've allowed this to happen, but there's a better way that you could have allowed this to happen. If you really wanted me to grow, you wouldn't have done this. You would have done this instead. That capacity, that impulse to think wrongly about what God is doing is not even existent within God. God always lives to uphold the glory of his personal attributes and his perfections. And he does so perfectly all the time. And as such, God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone. And to say otherwise would be an error. And would cause you or those to whom you speak with to have wrong thoughts about God. And as I have been known before, where did my, uh, what? And as I have been known before to leave out a, a slide that I was wanting to show you, which was my quote from A.W. Tozier, he said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Let me say that again. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And imagine if you had the wrong notion, the errant notion, that God purposefully and directly was sending trials and persecution into your life. What kind of thoughts would that give you about God? And then how would you communicate that? 
more than likely we would have wrong thoughts about God because it is wrong, because God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. And then we would communicate false and errant views of God and his character to others, thus leading ourselves and them into error about the very nature of God. And as James is going to show us, our temptation to think wrongly about trials and to sin as a result of that is not with God, but it's sourced within ourselves. James is going to show us in verse 14 that we are the culprit. Notice verse 14. He says, but each one is tempted, and there's our word again, when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. We are tempted to think wrongly about our various trials in life because of our own fleshly desires, our own lusts. Lust is from this Greek word here that says, from again, the luonida, Greek lexicon, to greatly desire to do or have something. Has anybody ever experienced that? Right in here. To desire to greatly have something, right? To long for, to desire very much. That's what James says is the source of our own temptations, to think wrongly about trials and thus sin against God. And in our James chapter 1 context, again, the clear temptation that would be spoken of here, contextually, would be for these new converts. These new converts to turn their back on their belief in Jesus Christ because in their flesh, things were much easier when they had their own homes to live in, when they had their own beds to sleep in every night, and when they had their own clothing to put on their back and to wear Every day, life was a whole lot simpler prior to their coming to faith in Christ, prior to the persecution that started after they heard some guy named Peter preach a message about Jesus who had risen from the dead following the day of Pentecost, and they believed. And then as a result of their believing, in came said persecution and ongoing trials, the likes of which are extremely difficult, like we've probably never experienced before in our lives. And that's the context in which James is reminding them to think rightly about trials and to not blame God. Don't say God's the one that brought these temptations. He's the one that's going to carry your soul and give care for your soul. He's the one that's going to use those things for good. He's the one that in the midst of, this, of those trials and suffering is going to be perfecting you. And as we saw last week in verse 12, when perfection is completed, we will receive the crown of life to those whom Christ promised. So James is saying to these believers, persevere, hang in, all the way to the end. If you're being tempted, you're being tempted because of your own lust. Notice the words he uses right here. He says, you're carried away. Carried away. So here we have our lust that's within our own bosom, our, our own desires to do, to do things. God, that's not how I would do it. I would do it this way. If I were God, I would do it this way. Anybody ever have thoughts like this? Am I the only one? Wow. I'm the only one. I've had these thoughts, trust me. And I've had to repent of these thoughts. 
carried away? Notice this. But each one is tempted when he is what? Carried away and enticed by his own lust. It's our, our lust that will carry us away. It's our, our lust that entices us to be tempted to think wrongly about trials. Carried away is to, notice this, to cause to change, to cause a change of belief so as to correspond more with the beliefs of the person or factor causing the change. Notice we're, we're, our own lusts are carrying us away. They're saying, you really shouldn't think this way about God. You should think that way about God instead. And those ways of thinking are incorrect, errant ways of thinking. But it's our lust that causes us to be carried away and enticed. This enticement is to lure. Entice someone to sin. To lead astray, to lure into sin. Our own lusts lure us away into sinning against God when we are being tempted. It's our own lusts that cause us to have the wrong sinful thinking that we have with regard to trials. And James is wanting us as believers to be strong. To stand firmly upon the rock, the person of Jesus Christ, come what sea bellows roll may come. And so he's reminding them very plainly. And when you think about the kindness of suffering that these individuals were going through, the plainness of, of his caution, this word of caution that he is giving them is a very firm, I would say it mildly that way, a very firm caution indeed. And, and let's face it, um, this would be a very real temptation indeed, wouldn't it? Try to walk a mile in their shoes. Try to walk two steps in their shoes. This would be a very real temptation in our flesh, in our lusts, our fleshly desires, to look back and say, man, we sure had it easy back then before we listened to this Peter guy preach. Are we sure that we heard Peter correctly? Are we sure that we understood exactly what he was saying? And it, are, are, are we certain... Did God really say, and we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, and the father of lies, the devil, whose plan is to steal, kill, and destroy. The seed that gets planted by the road, he quickly snatches it away. The father of lies is consistently lying with regard to the character and nature of God. God tempts no one to sin. Why are you being tempted to sin and to think wrongly about the circumstances that God has allowed in your life, dear brethren, who are dispersed abroad? Greetings. Why are you doing that? It's because of your own fleshly lust, your own desires to want to get out of your suffering and to say, God, you shouldn't have done it this way, you should have done it that way, and if had you done it that way, I wouldn't be the miserable lot that I am today. And thus we blame God as the source of our trials. Are you following me? This is a very serious word of caution, is it not? Now, bring this down into your own lives. You haven't been driven from your homes and etc., etc., but you faced various trials in life. And these same opportunities will come knocking at your door to think wrongly about said trials in your life. And that's why I told you, if you're ever going to memorize one chapter in the, in the entire book of the Bible, it needs to be the book of James chapter 1. Because this is where you live. This is where we live. We have these kind of thoughts frequently, do, do we not? We do. 
I've lived long enough now to know that this is true. I, I, I have these, I, I, I traffic in these areas mentally more than I would care to say that, that I do. Of fighting the good fight of faith. Of fighting back the temptation to think wrongly about circumstances. It wasn't too long ago I lived the, the hardest decade of my entire life. I remember what this was like in that context and continually, daily reminding myself of the truth of God's word and that being the source and my comfort of my soul, the rock upon which I stood. And just like it says, when those sea billows roll over, you're left standing to the praise and glory of God's name. And then ultimately, if you're like Stephen and they kill you, what's our perspective then? Well, Paul says that like to die is gain. It's like these Christians in the Bible are like crazy. Aren't they crazy? No, they're just normal people like you and I are. Living their lives just like you and I are. And they were convinced of something. They were convinced that God left heaven and came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. They believe that. They believe that. Where's my verse? Ah, maybe I left another one out. They believe that. And they believe things like this that I mentioned last week. This was a, this was a quote that I, I used last week, but it's a very well-driven nail, so I'm throwing it in again. Any trial that weans us from the love of passing things and sets our affections on things above is a blessing in disguise. And so we have to retrain the way we think about loss. It was the Apostle Paul who said his entire loss was his gain. We have to retrain the way we think about what we possess in the person of Jesus Christ as citizens of heaven. Houses, lands, cars, boats, money, all of it, etc., etc., etc. Anything money can buy. All these things that we can easily love, do we love them more than our relationship with Christ? These brothers had an opportunity to, to test that theory out, and James is here giving them a very dire warning about how to rightly think through these trials in their lives. And trials, as you know, have a way of weaning us away from the things of this world, the, the lust, the things that we love, these passing things. Trials is a cleansing element and when responded to rightly, can and will help us to set our affections more on the things that are above. Trials, when responded to rightly, when we get to the place where we can consider them as joy, knowing that it's God who's at work in us to want to work for his good pleasure and he's producing in us endurance for the race, we can have greater longings to be with Christ. We can discover within us a greater longing to be with Christ's people. We can discover within us a greater longing to be part of God's redemptive plan in human history before leaving earth and to invest ourselves therein. Or trials will cause us to have temptations to sin, perhaps to change our beliefs to accommodate those fleshly desires and will lure us into sin. And James shows us clearly in verse 15 the results of this, the results of following after these fleshly desires, he says, then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. This word conceived is the word conceived, to become pregnant. 
When lust, our fleshly desires for a different outcome to what God has allowed to touch our lives becomes pregnant, meaning when we in our minds conceive of a way to get that desired outcome, we have thus been carried away and enticed by that desire. And when we act on it, what happens? It gives birth to sin. And when that happens, when sin is accomplished, what does our own lust do for us? It brings forth death. Sin always leads to death. That's why we sometimes say that sin is temporary insanity. Because your lusts cause you to change your mind about a perspective from God's allowance of trials to touch your life. And you think wrongly about things. You get temporarily insane. And you actually think about doing this thing over here. It's actually going to bring a fulfilling pleasure or joy in your life greater than God producing endurance in you. And we wrongly think about those things. We wrongly think about trials. We blame God. We blame others. We never look into ourselves. James is saying, you're the culprit. And when your lust drags you away, carries you away, and entices you, it gives birth, it gets full conception, it gives birth to sin, and sin will lead to death in your life, death in your relationships at home, death in everything you do. You want more death? Never, right? Well, stop sinning. Because it's not that easy, Pastor. Well, exactly, it's not that easy because we have this thing in us, this flesh. And so the scriptures tell us every day we need to be putting to death what? The deeds of the flesh. That wage war. There's a spirit within us that wages war with our flesh that's within us so that we do not do the things that we would please to do. Our flesh would please to do things that were contrary to the right ways of God, God's standards, God's right paths. We would prefer to do things otherwise. And so James leaves us, leaves these dear brethren again in verse 16 with a very firm word of caution. He says, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. And how we know that we're in the same context, again, just it's, it holds together so tightly. But when you get to cons- verse 2, consider it all joy, my brethren. He's talking to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. And here he's even saying again, my beloved brethren. James is talking to the exact same people who are going through suffering and persecution. He told them to consider it joy. You know the, you know the verses because you're memorizing this right now. I know. And he's saying, do not be deceived. Deceived is from a word that means to cause someone to hold a wrong view. When someone deceives you, they're causing you to hold a wrong view and thus be mistaken. And when you go after sinful things to find cures to the ailment that you have, your trial, your suffering, your loss, whatever it may be, you will be wrongly and sadly mistaken when you think that therein you're going to find pleasure and joy. God says that at his right hand are pleasures and joys forevermore. God is the one who says, taste and see that I am good. 
Eat the word of God, meaning do it and taste it, and you will see that God is good. You will see that there are pleasures to God's right hand forevermore when you do things God's way. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren, about the various trials that you face and start thinking wrongly that somehow God's the source of it. He never has loved me anyway. He always loved this other person better. Look at their life. Look at how, look at how successful they've been or whatever it may be. Stop it. James' word of caution is stop it. Do not be deceived. Where do we go to get our intel? Where do we go to get our source of truth? We go back to the scriptures. And what God says is true is what we say is true. Amen? And this is what James is for. It's God's source. It's God's source of truth. It's an inerrant, inspired word given to James by the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God is telling us to not be so easily deceived by our own lusts. Do this. Do what he's saying whenever you encounter various trials. Do it. Trust it. Blindly do it by faith, but do it. Do it. And, oh, beloved, we love each other. We're in the family of God. I know this isn't easy, and you know it's not easy. And so we bear one another's burdens. We pray for one another. We lift each other up. That's why we're in life groups together. We're not just there to say we did it. We're there to live life together because life can get messy and hard. Young adults living under your roof don't always want to do things exactly the way that you tried to tell them to do it when they were children. Anybody ever experienced that one? I haven't. These, these kids, perfect. <laughs> Mother's Day is all, mother, is, all, is all Lisa. Do not be deceived. Beloved brethren, you and the 12 tribes who have been dispersed, lost your land, your home, don't be deceived. Don't go back. It'd be better to die in the, in the diaspora, knowing Christ, than going back. Don't be deceived. Paul in Philippians 3, 7 through 11, but whatever things were gained to me, and, and in the previous verses, he was telling us what was of gain to him. Don't have time now. But those things that were gained to me, those things... Those things specifically, those things in my life that I thought were of gain to me, those things that gave me some social sta standing and status, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Is Paul crazy? Or is he in love? Love will make you do crazy things, won't it? It will. Paul's convinced that Jesus rose from the dead and appeared lastly to him. He saw him with his own eyes. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. And this is what we must be convinced of, that there is a surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. We must be convinced that there is a surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. And this is what Paul is going to tap into here. For whom I have, and here he is, he, he's not free from trials, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish in comparison to what I have, the surpassing value. It's compared to, compared to the surpassing value that Paul has of knowing Christ as his Lord. All that other stuff that was gained to him is, is rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That's true eternal life. And may be found in him not having a righteousness on my own derived from the law, but that which is through 
faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Paul's like, Jesus suffered, I want to suffer. If my Lord suffered, then I'm going to go through and speak the same message that he spoke. If he suffered for it and I suffer for it, what's the difference? And the fellowship. There's a fellowship, a sharing in common in the sufferings that Jesus had. And, he says, being conformed to his death. He's not worried about that. In order. Surpassing value. We talked about surpassing value, right? What's surpassing value? Verse 11. In order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. In order that I will be with the only true and living God forever and ever and ever in his presence as opposed to apart from his presence forever and ever and ever. When you compare the two, there is no difference. There is a surpassing value in Christ, even if it cost you everything as it did young William Borden. Amen? It's easy to say the amen, but let me tell you, it's tough living, it's tough walking that walk. It's not easy. But it's here, is it not? It's here. It's right here in the scriptures. This is what it's calling us to do. And so in verses 17 and 18, quickly, Paul gives us, after this stern warning, word of caution and warning, he gives us a word of faith, a word of hope. Notice in verse 17, he says, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. Now think about this in the context of what he's been saying. Every good thing given. What are the good things that are given by God? Well, contextually, when we go back up into verse 2, 3, and 4, the good thing that is given from God is endurance that is gained from God by enduring the trials and considering them joy. The good thing that God gives us is endurance so that we can be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's the good thing that God gives us in the context of trial. Every good thing given, oh, and every perfect gift I view this as salvation as a gift. It's a free gift of God. You who are out there in the diaspora who lost everything and are suffering and being persecuted for the sake of Christ, that perfect gift of faith in Jesus Christ came at the cross of God's dear Son. And it's a gift, and it's the good that he's doing in your life. All that is from above. God has allowed these things to touch your life. God has allowed these things to happen in you. And God is the one that takes responsibility for your saving as well. This is what God has done in your life, so don't punt it. These things are coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. God is the same yesterday, today, and what? Forever. God's not fickle. He's not changing his mind. He's not shifting over this way. I always get a chuckle. Well, it's more than a chuckle when people say, well, if, God, if Jesus were alive today, he, would, he wouldn't say it this way. He would say this instead. <laughs> There's no variation or shifting shadow in God. His moral standards are perfect. They've always been perfect, and they forever will be perfect. He's not changing his mind as though he were a man who had flesh and could be tempted to sin. That's not the God that we serve. James has made that very clear. And so in verse 18, we notice the connection of this, this word of faith. In the exercise of whose will? His will. He brought us forth by the word of truth. Oh, you remember that word that Peter preached following the day of Pentecost and you guys listened to it and you came to saving faith? When the word of truth was preached, 
That's the same word of truth that God accorded. When he exercised his will, he's the one that brought us forth according to the truth of the gospel. He opened your blind eyes to see. He's the one that informed you that Jesus was actually God from heaven who came to earth to give a wretch like us an eternal inheritance. Oh, yeah, and so that clause, the henna clause, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. God's kindness to you in the first century church. The first of those who are, or who are coming to faith and having your spiritually blind eyes open to see, the first to, 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 to join in in the fellowship of the sufferings of Christ. The first fruits would, would have been the, fruit, the first fruits of the, the ingathering of the, of the crop. The best of the best. James is like saying, you guys are the best of the best. You're like, when God, when God showed his pleasure upon you and drew you to himself so that you could share in his sufferings and the fellowship of his sufferings, he knew that he was drawing unto himself the best of the best. Don't go back. Do not be deceived, brethren. Do not go back. It's better with little here than a full abundance over there because who's always good? God is always good. And when he's on your side, you can't lose. Amen? Are you seeing this word of caution and then how he firms it up with this word of faith and saying, hang in there? It's God's work in you. He's the one who began this good work in you and he will perfect it in you until the day of Christ Jesus. Persevere all the way to the end, saints, beloved brethren. Even through your various trials, don't punt. Keep running strong with Christ. That's a good word. Let's pray.